standard issue for all women. Welcome to this episode of The Sunday Chops. It's another double serving for you this week, you lucky, lucky things. In our other episode, Mick is chatting to Elaine Miller, aka Gusset Grippers, a physiotherapist specialising in pelvic health who you might have heard on this very podcast last year. They're chatting about all sorts of things in the third part of our series on the menopause. Elaine is amazing. We love her and it's a really, really excellent listen, relevant to women of all ages. So if you're a sprightly 37-year-old as I am today, if you're listening on Sunday, it is still worth your time, lads. It's coming to us all, so we might as well know a little bit about it before then, innit? In this episode, you can hear the rest of my chat with Juventus and former England striker Enia Luco, which we previewed on the pod the other week. Enia and I talk about her new book they don't teach this about identity valuable life lessons and taking on the man now i do just need to say up the top mark sampson former england manager who i referenced to having left his job in this interview was actually dismissed by the football association following the emergence of and i quote inappropriate and unacceptable behavior in a previous role he did later reach a financial settlement with the fa over that dismissal Anyway, Enny's book is enlightening and inspiring and I hope you enjoy listening to us chat about it as much as I enjoyed speaking to her. And if I sound quite serious, it's because I was really trying not to fangirl all over her like an actual fool. Enjoy. I'm joined by Enia Luco, Juventus striker and former England international. Let's talk about her new book, They Don't Teach This. Any, hi, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to kick off, no pun intended, hey, I honestly <laughs> didn't mean to say that, I'm quite embarrassed now. I want to kick off with talking a little bit about some of the different themes that you cover in the book. And one of the things that I thought was quite interesting was stuff about identity. Right. So you, obviously you're a woman in football and you're British Nigerian and that's something that you've had to sort Navigate. of... Gr- Yeah, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I think growing up, I was born in Nigeria and came to England when I was one, maybe even less than one. And growing up as sort of on an estate in Birmingham with a lot of white kids, a lot of white boys, I knew I was different, but I was very much accepted in that group. So I was one of them. And... I never really had to confront the fact... I never really had to confront my difference until much later on when actually it became something that was kind of staring me in the face. When I got called up for England for the first time, I didn't have a British passport. So then it was like, oh, okay, so I'm not British then, even though I felt British for, at that point, 15 years. And then one of my first experiences in Nigeria was quite a stressful one. It wasn't a pleasant one for me. So... The combination of all those things made me sort of have two identities in one body at odds with each other. And me only really wanting to be known as one thing. But actually, I've realised now, and it's one of the big lessons in the book, not just for me, but for other people reading it, is that we have to be get to a point where we embrace all of the aspects of who we are and not try and put ourselves in, in boxes and say, well, I'm just this or I'm just that. No, we're both. And the hyphen, you know, is, is an illustration of, of connecting those two things together. So embrace the hyphen is really an empowering message to say. Obviously, it speaks directly to sort of second-generation immigrants that grew up in England and grew up in Britain who are from somewhere else. People in diaspora who may live somewhere else and be from somewhere else to say, you know, it's okay to say that you are affected by where you are, but you're from somewhere else and embracing all those elements. It also goes further than that. It's about multi-hyphenated careers. And I think as women, we are amazing at that, like multitasking and being multidimensional in who we are. But a lot of the time, people try and box us into 
oh, she's just a women's footballer, or, oh, she's just a token female pundit. No, you're all of those things. You're all of those amazing things. We live in a kind of age at the moment where it's kind of like us and them. You're either Labour or you're Conservative. You're either this or you're that. And, you know, for me, it doesn't really work like that. You can be amalgamations of many amazing things. Going back a little bit to your identity, I guess, as, oh, she's just a female footballer. Obviously, you've had a really long career now. You started when you were a teenager. You joined Birmingham City. I guess you weren't professional at the time, semi-professional. And that was a long time ago. So you will have seen an extraordinary amount of change Change, in that time. I actually support Charlton Athletic. Um, Do you? Do, yeah, yeah, I know. At the time, Charlton and Arsenal were the sort of... The main teams, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. and people forget that about Charlton. They forget that. Pioneers. And obviously it all kind of went wrong when, sadly, we were relegated. What kind of impact did that have on you sort of early on in football? And and how has that sort of changed over time? Well, I think at at that time, Charlton, as you said, were one of the best teams in the country. and, And moving from Birmingham to Charlton was the equivalent now of, like, moving from Birmingham to Chelsea. Like, it was a massive step up for me. And at the time, I was at college, and I was travelling two, two days a week to London, and it was a big, big deal for me. It was a big step up, playing with, you know, players like Pauline Cope, legends of the game at the time. But it was semi-pro, and, you know, I was getting paid sort of £100 a week, £100 a game, if you played. You know, if you played, you get paid. If you don't play, you don't get paid. If you're injured, you don't get paid. So that was the reality of it. And for me, it was like pocket money for college. By no stretch of the imagination was it a career path. So I had a bit of a problem because I loved what I did. I loved playing for Charlton, but I was 17, 18. And that's when you have to make real decisions about your career. So when Charlton collapsed, it was like, oh, God, OK, now this really cannot be a career path now. Like, it's, it's, I've got to focus on my education. I've got to focus on my career. And so for the longest time, I just thought I wasn't going to play football. I thought it was just going to be a hobby. And then I got the call from America to go to America and play professionally. And that's the first time I could actually call football a job, but it wasn't in England. So actually, professional football in England is a really new thing. It's only the last five years that you can actually say, well, I've got a contract and I'm paid to do this. This is my job. And I don't have to do anything else. I can pay my mortgage without panicking, which is a sharp contrast to the men, for example. So it's moved on a lot, and I think the Olympics helped that, 2012. I think opening up the Olympics, people went, oh, women's football's all right. And then the club started getting on board, and then the FA started trying to put more investment into it. But honestly, growing up, I never thought we would be where we are now in terms of having professional league, professional clubs, pathways for young girls didn't exist I think the FA player is really exciting you know they're going to put the um, WSL games on the internet basically on a platform that's like free to watch you've got to give the FA a lot of credit for what they've done in the last few years with the FA WSL they've really taken on board some of the complaints that fans had in terms of fixtures in terms of just the access to information Broadcasting, I think, obviously, they, they, they had good intentions with getting a broadcaster with B, BT Sport, but it was still pay-per-view TV, and what you need is accessibility to the women's game. So that move now with the FA player is, is amazing because people around the world will now be able to watch women's football free every week. The only issue, slight issue I have, is that we're coming off the back of a World Cup that was watched by so many people and the only issue I have is is are you spoiling fans 
to become armchair fans. In the sense that in England, if you look at men's football, it's tradition to go to a game. Even if you can watch five games on your sofa, people still go to the game. Why? Because their grandpa did it, their dad did it, their mum did it. It's part of habit, the spectator habits of going to watch football. That's not happening in women's football. Women's football, every four years, you get a sellout stadium, so you get peak spike broadcast viewings. But then when the World Cup's over, you go and watch Chelsea Arsenal's 1,000 people in the dog in the stadium. The all-important dog in the The all-important dog. You who still counts. (laughs) (laughs) But ultimately, we need to change that into, no, we want full stadiums every week Mm. so i just wonder when i saw that if i was like that's brilliant but is it the time to do it Mm. isn't now the time to actually get people to come to games every week and bring their daughters to games every week and spend that money buy that season ticket so it's a hard one it's a really hard balance to i wonder a little bit with that my only slight concern about it is i think on one hand it's great it might potentially become more watched than men's football because it's free so anyone can watch it all you need is you know a phone or a laptop or whatever and you can sit down and watch it i mean i don't think it will become more watched than men's football immediately but it has that potential you know the accessibility is there but what i wonder is are we devaluing the women's game by saying it's free that's a great question because you know i obviously play for juventus now and last year we played fiorentina at the alliance stadium and the men's stadium and all the tickets were free but it was a sellout the idea that something's free doesn't necessarily mean that people still have to come actually sometimes when something's free you're more likely to say, I can't bother to go. The fact that it was free and people still came says to me that there's an actual genuine appetite there. And the next time you do the same thing and you put €10 on it, £10, whatever it may be, people will pay. So I think the free tickets can be a strategy to lead into something else. But again, it's a balance. It's a fine balance to strike because if you keep making it free, people don't associate it with parting with their money and invested in the game. You have, throughout your career, you've been a voice for change in the game, you've called out injustices in a variety of different ways, and you were instrumental, when you talk about this in the book, you are instrumental in bringing about the sort of salaries and contracts yeah. for the England women's team, which is, you know, a huge, huge step forward. What kind of change did that affect? Is it really all about the money, the improvements that we're seeing now? I don't think it's all about money, no, but I think it starts with money. I think it starts with investment. Greater investment means better contracts for players, so players aren't having to panic about their mortgages, which is what was happening after we came back from the World Cup. Players were like, I can't do this anymore, I can't afford to pay my mortgage, taking unpaid leave. More investment affects everything. It affects contracts, it affects training facilities, it affects injuries, fitness levels. You know, once you invest in players and once you invest in the environment that players are in, everything else gets better. And that's why now it's a professional setup. You're not having all these concerns that you had before. Women's football has never been about money. Frankly, if it was about money, I would have given up a long time ago and focused on my legal career that pays very well. I can guarantee you most female footballers do not play for the money. However, it has to get to a level where you've got to respect what females do in the game and say... They're professional athletes, elite athletes like everybody else, like every other athlete, and so need to be paid 
for that level of expertise. And it's all moved on. I think the facilities, the, the, the system has, has got so much more professional now. When I talk about it in the book and say, we were having so many conversations as players at that time about negative stuff like, oh, I can't afford this, or oh, I've got to go back to uni and, you know, I can't afford to pay my rent at uni because, you know, I'm not getting paid on time. And we're representing our country. So I remember thinking, you know what, this is not right, this is not. And we'd obviously got to the quarterfinal as well, so we'd done pretty well in the World Cup in 2009, I believe. Okay. 2000. After the 2007 World Cup, it was in sharp focus, the issue about you know, player salaries. It's a big argument all the time now, especially on social media, if you dare to say anything about female footballer salaries I totally understand yeah I totally understand that with the domestic leagues there is a case that until you start bringing in more money it is harder to justify but I do think when it comes to the national team you're literally doing the same yeah, job yeah, you're yeah. representing your, your country you should be paid the same the problem is the guys aren't paid so, so they give they? yeah to me that's a kind of perverse situation yeah where the men are paid so well in the domestic league that they can literally afford to give yeah. away their England fee, yeah. whereas where the women can't. are still, yeah. you know, fighting for the scraps. I think that's... Yeah, no, you've, you've, you've said it perfectly. I completely agree. And even, I mean, look at the US team now, US women's team now. They are the most successful football team, sports team in American history, I believe, and still have to fight for equal pay. Equal pay should be the starting point for them because they're far more successful than the men. They bring in more money than the men. So regardless of what they do to prove that, it's still a problem. So I don't know where England's going to be, you know, in terms of equal pay. I, I don't think it's necessarily relevant in our situation because obviously the men in the league here is, is far greater. But I do think it needs to get to a point where people just need to accept that women around the world, if you are doing an amazing job at what you do and are better, then you should at the very least be paid the same, at the very least. Because if the shoe's on the other foot and a man is better, they get paid. I want to ask you a couple of questions about the case against the FA. Basically, the situation was Mark Sampson joined the England team as the manager and created what I'm going to call a sort of fairly hostile environment for you and uh, ended up, obviously, with a case. There was a parliamentary inquiry. He was found to have made racist statements to you and another player, and he left his job, but actually not because of that for slightly different reasons, which is... I think in itself interesting but anyway <laughs> so obviously it went on for a really long time and you were sort of like fighting this for quite a long time you were playing for Chelsea at the time as well Chelsea were doing really well one of the sort of major teams is it the case that effectively caused you to leave England and go to Juventus no I don't think so I think I think there was a bit of a gap in time between me not being in the England team and leaving to go to, to Juventus so my last game for England was April 2016. I was playing in England after that I won the golden boot in the league. 2017 I played another season in England in 2017 and left in 2018. So there was a bit of a gap in time between me you know, not being in the England team and, and leaving. But you know people ask me all the time you know is the case the reason why you, you don't play for England anymore? I think it's a legitimate question to say that, that it cost me my England career. And I kind of knew at the time it would. Do you think that's because people began to see you as a, uh, in inverted commas, a troublemaker? I think when I was in the team, I think that would be a difficult argument to maintain because I literally was in my room half the time and didn't really speak to anyone. Got to a point where I didn't speak up in meetings, didn't challenge, did, I mean, because 
I was so withdrawn within myself in terms of just wanting to just do my job on the pitch and go home. So in terms of being a troublemaker, the only trouble I cause is telling the truth. And people see that as trouble, but I think that, I think if anything, says everything you need to know about the culture. If, if you are punishing people for telling the truth, if you are punishing people for saying, you said something to me that makes me feel less of a human being because I have my colour of my skin, and you don't play for England anymore, and you're labelled a troublemaker, that says everything you need to know about the culture. And it's not just me. I mean, I'm the one that kind of had to bear the brunt of it, but, you know, you look at players like Leanne Sanderson, who was not happy that the FA forgot about her 50th cap. But literally from the day she complained about it, she hasn't played for England again. If you look at Drew Spence, who actually didn't really complain about anything, but inadvertently got brought into this through the leak to the Daily Mail. You know, she came out and said, no, Mark did say that to me. Again, hasn't played for England again. Anita Rosante, who, you know, got called into a camp by Mark Sampson and for whatever reason he decided to tell her before anybody else that she wasn't going to be part of his World Club squad. She was upset about it, she confronted him about it, didn't play for England again. All of those people I've just named have one thing in common. We're all of colour. We were either black or mixed race. So I don't like drawing conclusions, but I think the facts are the facts and, and there was something not right going on. And I was put in a position where I had to tell that truth. When I was in the team, I did what most footballers do, which is get your head down and play football. And ironically, during that time, that's the, my best two years in an England shirt in terms of goal scoring, was the most miserable time. So one of the things I talk about in the book is how do we use these negative energies, negative situations, which we're going to face at work. You know, I'm not the only one who might have a situation in life where you, you feel like your boss doesn't like you or you feel like your boss is... You feel like your boss is, oh, he's, he's a bit funny or she's a bit funny with me. Why is he saying that? Or why is he being really nice to her and not to me? That's a universal thing. You know, I just happen to experience it on a public level. So it's one of the things I want to do with the book and what, one of the things I've done with the book is talk about myself but open it up and say, okay, if you are in this situation, what do you do? All you can do is focus on your performance. All you can do is put that energy into what you do and what you're there to do. And so despite being miserable, despite having so, being confused and asking so many questions all the time and feeling like, oh, my God, he doesn't like me because I'm black or whatever it may be, I channeled that energy into scoring goals. And so the chapter, When You're Scoring, You're Safe, in the book is about that. It's about saying, if you just focus on performing and doing the best you can do at work, that's your safety net and, and it can kind of neutralise to some extent, negativity that you're feeling. Oh, hey guys. If you're listening to this on Sunday morning, Sunday the 15th of September, that is, my birthday, you have still got time, if you live in or around the London area, to get yourselves down to King's Place this afternoon at 4.30, where we will be doing a live show as part of the London Podcast Festival, joined by the fantastic journalist and co-author of Slay in Your Lane, Yomi Adegaki, and comedian and disability rights campaigner, Tanya Lee Davis. It's going to be ace. We'd love to see you there bits of the book are heartbreaking really you know the stuff about your hundredth cap which you kind of got messed around with massively and weren't able to sort of celebrate it in in the way that other players have been able to and in the way that you would have expected to be able to 
really hard to read because you're just like, oh, why are you being such a dick? Yeah. <laughs> like, no, you know, <laughs> really <laughs> felt for you. You know, I didn't, I didn't write the book with the agenda to make anyone look bad, but I, I wrote it with uh, ghostwriter Josie LeBlond to say if stuff happens and a lot of the time people are projecting onto you what they've experienced themselves. That 100 cap situation was real confirmation for me that, okay, this is, you know, this is an agenda to make me feel... Like, I'm not worthy of this celebration. But I don't know whether that was because in Mark Sampson's life, he didn't feel validated in whatever, you know, achievement he may have, you know. So it all traces back to something. But it is heartbreaking, and it, I was heartbroken at the time. And so, you know, if that comes across in the book, it's good because that's the feeling I felt. But, you know, I've got over it. I've moved on. I'm here. I'm, I, I'm able to share my experience and hopefully relate to somebody else that's going through the same thing. And I'm a firm believer, and, you know, I think my faith comes through in the book quite strongly. I'm a strong believer that everything is destined, like, it all happens for your destiny. Like, that door shuts so you can do that. Like, I don't know whether I'd be in Italy right now if I was still playing for the England team. I don't know if I would have written a book if I was still playing for the England team. So... I'm grateful for the, the pain and, the, op and the, the experience and the heartbreak. Given what happened with the England team and, and given what you talked about a bit in the book about your identity, do you ever feel, because also you have a brother who's a mm. professional footballer as well, who he plays internationally for Nigeria. Did you ever feel like if you had your time again, you would maybe pick Nigeria over England? That's a great question. I think if the choice was offered to me now, it wasn't even a choice. It wasn't a choice to me growing up. So I, I got called up to play for England or played for England, whereas my brother could choose. I think if I had the choice again, I probably would play for Nigeria. And that's not any disrespect at all to England. I'm extremely grateful for my career. But I think that some of the challenges I've had to go through, because I'm, I'm an England player that's not English, a lot of the questions, it's just it was just more headache than it needed to be. I just wanted to play football. Yeah. So maybe I would choose Nigeria. I don't know. But then the same breath, you know, my life wouldn't be what it is now and I wouldn't have learned what I have now if I played for Nigeria. So I honestly can't give you the answer to that no, question. Yes. You've stumped me on that one. So as we've sort of talked about, the book is sort of set in different lessons you've learned, uh, hence the title, They Don't Teach This. So... Obviously, we've talked about having a boss who's a bit of an idiot or you don't get on with or whatever, because I think you're right, that's a universal experience. We've all been there and it's a horrible experience. Yeah. Additionally, what is the hardest lesson you've learned and what is the most valuable lesson you've learned? I'll give you the most valuable. I think the most valuable one, because of what my career is, is in sport, has been the idea that you have to dare to fail. You've got to put yourself in a position to to keep failing, to succeed. One comes before the other. I thought growing up that it was all success, 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 success. And when I had my biggest failure with Chelsea in 2014, it really shook me to the core. Like, I didn't want to play football. I wanted to give up. And it was like, you want to give up? What, just because you... And it's like, no, I really want to give up. I couldn't cope with it because it had been an upward trajectory like that since I was young. I'd been patted on the back Ah, oh, footballer, footballer, footballer. I've been uh, picked when I was 17. It was Olympics, this, this, that. And then I failed really publicly. We failed really publicly for Chelsea. We lost the league on the last day of the season and I couldn't cope with it. And that was my experience of, one, not being able to deal with failure, which 
is inevitable. But then the year after, in 2015, obviously we, we used the failure of the previous year to motivate us. But then when it came to actually the, the FA Cup final at Wembley, I was a nervous wreck. And I was a nervous wreck because I was like, it was like stage fright. I was like, I don't want to go out there because I don't want to play because I might fail again and I might feel what I felt. So the biggest lesson for me, the most valuable lesson for me in everything I do now is that you've got to be brave enough to put yourself back in that position to fail. You don't know where, how it's going to go. You can't control it. You can only control your performance on the day. The other team might beat you. The other team might be better than you. Something may go wrong. So it's the idea of a big lesson in the book is, is you've got to dare to fail. You've got to put yourself in a position to fail over and over and over again to succeed. And some of the most successful people have failed multiple times. I think for me personally, in terms of a difficult lesson, I talk about growing up as the kid that was accepted and wanted to be accepted, so much so that I told people to call me Eddie and not call me my actual name because I wanted to be one of the boys. When I look back at it, I say, okay, that's a kid that just wants to be part of the group. That repeated itself with, with Mark Sampson. I was so perplexed at why he didn't like me because I wanted to be like, oh, I want to be like the other, the other girls. I want to be, I want to be favoured. I want to be liked. Mm. It was, it was like the, the little girl. It's a dangerous thing because if someone doesn't like you, it's their problem. I've learned that the first thing you have to do is self-validate first. If you're always constantly seeking validation from other people, you can't control that. They might wake up someday and, and just not like your perfume, and that's going, to, that's going to affect you for the rest of the day. So I've learned how to self-validate. And during that experience in the two years under Mark Sampson, I learned that, okay, at the starting point, I have to believe in myself. So I used to watch videos of myself. I used to watch myself scoring. I used to listen to, you know, preachers that used to talk about how to deal with opposition. It started with me first, not with anybody else. And I think the minute you can do that, the minute that radiates and... People can't knock you as much as they can anymore, you know. So now, if I feel like someone doesn't really like me or there's friction, I think, okay, you're entitled to that opinion, but I believe in myself first. And so it's like full circle from that little girl that kind of you know, was always accepted and fitted in the group to the one that didn't fit in the group and how I've, I've been able to grow from that experience. A lot of your life lessons have come from your mum. She sounds like a smart lady. Is she a very important influence on your life? Yeah, she is, you know, absolutely. I mean, she, she's inspirational because, I mean, she's done it the hard way, you know. She came to this country, you know, she was from a middle-class background in Nigeria with pretty affluent parents, but she came to England and no-one cared about that. She had to start from the bottom. And um, that was difficult for her. And then she had me and my brother and, you know, it was pretty much a single parent raising us. Instilled just strong seeds. And I call them seeds because, you know, my mother never really, like, enforced anything onto us. Like, she's not that kind of parent. But she planted a lot of seeds that gr have grown in us. You know, the seed of faith. You know, she, you know, we used to read the Bible together a lot when we were younger. And it wasn't like, you have to read this, you know. And I think that's the difference between religion and faith. You know, a lot of people grow up in religious backgrounds and end up rebelling against it because it's, like, enforced onto them. I never had that experience. It was something that was planted in me. So when I came to having adversity, it was a fallback for me. So I'm really grateful to her for that. And I talk in the book about her letting me go to New York when I was, like, 14, which is just bizarre now. But that was a really big trip for me because it inspired me to stop hanging around with the, you know, naughty kids at school and 
pretended like I liked smoking when I didn't. And so her allowing me to do that and giving me the freedom to do that, you know, those are the things that I think I point to for her as a parent. Um, and sometimes we disagree, you know. I can be hard-headed sometimes and, you know, we can disagree, but she is somebody that is very honest and very wise and talks about destiny and legacy and how are you affecting change or how are you affecting other people in what you're doing. She kind of, I'm stealing this from someone else, someone else said it, Chidera Egaru, the slum flower, writes in her book a dedication to her mum who, she said, led her to herself. It sounds like a kind of similar... Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, we're all on a discovery, right? You know, my mum's had her own challenges that she's had to deal with and, you know, she's a successful woman in her own right. You know, she, she ran a successful healthcare business for 20 years. And just without even saying anything, I learned from her and watching her and seeing her, what she was doing. But yeah, a lot of the wisdom that she talks about led me to understand more about myself, for sure. Particularly during these difficult periods. And I remember calling my mom sometimes and she'd get annoyed with me because she'd be like, you're so obsessed with this negativity. You're so obsessed with this negative situation. Tell yourself, you know, confidence starts from you, you know. And it would wake me up and I'd be... Because I, I got into a cycle of, like, complaining and, you know, oh, it's, it's miserable and, oh, how many days left until I can get off camp? And playing for the England team, like, supposed to be an honour. So sometimes she'd be like, you're in charge of your own confidence. You're in charge of your own validation. You, your destiny is much bigger than your boss. It's one of the most profound phone calls I've ever had because it woke me up a little bit and I was like, you know what, it's just right. There's a lot going on at the moment. There's a lot of chat about sort of racist abuse on Twitter that male yeah. footballers have been enduring and I'm sure female footballers do as well. Do you have any thoughts on what we can do about that? Do you see there being a specific problem with social media? Yeah, I think it's a pretty simple solution. I think basically the social media platforms need to just be um, stronger in their enforcement policies. There's all sorts of technology now that can flag up words that, you know, if you, you literally won't be able to type that word in or that kind of abuse in. Prevent it even going on the platform. And, you know, people say, oh, freedom of speech. Yeah, but if, you, if you're on the street, you can't say that stuff. You get arrested. So why is it different online? You know, we've created a world where crime can go unpunished online and it, than it can in the street. You can't say that stuff to a black person on the street and get arrested for hate speech. So for me, it all ends with the social media platforms. They don't care enough to actually have a hard line about it. And when you compare sometimes the level of care to other areas, if someone is tweeting terrorists, they're not going to be able to tweet that yeah. again. Oh, if it's racism, oh, yeah, it's not good, but they can get away with it. No. Finally, what is next for you? Presumably your season must be starting pretty soon. Yes, it is. It is, and we've got the toughest draw in the whole Champions League draw. We've got Barcelona. He got to the final last year, so we've got Barcelona in the, in the opening game, which is going to be a really tough game. But we're going to give it a go and, and, and believe. I think it starts with belief that anything can happen. And, yeah, I'm just really enjoying talking about the book because, you know, I've been working on this for a long time. So it's nice that it's finally here and we can release it and talk about it and hopefully people will really enjoy it. So just excited about that for the next, you know, next six months. Do you feel better that you finally had a chance to, because 
again, if you read the book, there's a lot of stuff in there with the things that went on with the FA and things that you were or weren't allowed to say, and it all got a bit like confusing and muddled. Does it feel cathartic to finally like put your side yeah, of the story across? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think beyond that, I think I've always tried to be open and honest, but I think in the media now, there's always an angle. You know, there's always an angle, there's always a headline that, that misrepresents the true essence of what you're trying to say. And so with the book, there's none of that. You know, you have time to really not only just self-reflect, but put it down in a way that's really going to be true and honest. I've done an audio book as well, which is my voice. But I find that the most difficult that, you know, sometimes when you speak to journalists they've they've already got an angle in their mind of what they want to put across writing a book has really helped me be able to say no that's what it actually happened that's what happened that's the book forget the angle forget the piece you know so and just understand that I've also moved on an autobiography naturally you have to talk about history and you have to go back to those emotions and go back to those events but it's also important to say that I've moved on from some of those difficult moments and most importantly, explained how I've moved on, and hopefully that can help someone else who's going through something like that now. So it's really important for me to kind of not just tell my story, but also to explain how to move on from those things. Well, from now on, I will be asking myself, what would any do? So uh, <laughs> when faced with difficult situations. So, any, where can we find you on that wretched platform, Twitter, if we want to sort of keep up to date with what you're doing and the book? And... Uh, on Twitter, I'm Eni Alu, um, so E-N-I-A-L-U. On Instagram, I'm Eni Alu Co. In terms of the book, they don't teach this lessons in the game of life. You can buy on Amazon, you can buy the audiobook on Audible, and there's a special signed limited edition available on Waterstones. So... And it's out 29th of August. Only thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Hello, Mickey here to tell you how you can find out more about us. And that is if you want to follow us on Twitter. Standard Issue is at Standard Issue UK. I'm at Mixed Noonan. Hannah is at That Dunleavy. And Jen is at Inspira Jen. And you can find out more about our views, opinions and general nonsense if you follow us over there. Look forward to having a natter. Standard issue for all women.